The text I would like to call your attention to today will be found in Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. If you turn in your copy of God's Word there, it is right after Joel. But you know what? There is no shame, if you don't know where Amos is, to using your table of contents. Um, The translators put a handy page number in there that will help you find the book of Amos. And while you are turning there, just to want to make a quick note, as many of you know, uh, several church members went up um, this week to a convention in Wasilla, and I just want to say uh, what we said downstairs, um, that I am incredibly grateful for everyone's time and money. If you don't know it, all of those messengers went on their own dime, uh, paid for their own plane tickets. And as I said downstairs, and I thought a lot this week, I am unworthy to pastor such people. And so I'm just incredibly grateful for every single one of you, even the ones that didn't get the chance to go, because I know you were praying for us while we were away. But looking at Amos, we're going to read the first two chapters, and I promise you that we are not going to walk through every verse of the first two chapters, so no one's anxiety needs to spike this morning. But we are going to read the first two chapters of Amos, starting in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Johash. Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they thresh Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore, I will send fire against Hazael's palace, and it will consume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon, and the one who wields the scepter from Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Ker. The Lord has spoken." The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Gaza, and it will consume its citadels. I will cut off the ruler of Ashdod and the one who wills a scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remainder of the Philistines will perish. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke the treaty of the brotherhood. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Tyre, and it will consume its citadels. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion. His anger tore at him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. Therefore, I will send fire against Teman and will consume the citadels of Basra. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Amorites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. 
Therefore, I will set fires to the walls of Rabbah, and I will consume its citadels. There will be shouting on the day of battle and a violent wind on the day of the storm. Their king and his princes will go into exile together. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Therefore, I will send fire against Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kiriath. Moab will die with a tumult, with shouting, and the sound of the ram's horn. I will cut off the judge from the land and kill all of its officials with him. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies of their ancestors followed and have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor, on the dust of the ground, and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside the altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroy the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like that of cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years into the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, and the one who is swift of foot will not save himself, and the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous warriors will flee naked on the day. This is the Lord's declaration. And this is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths on our heart this morning. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the somber reminder we find in your word today of the penalty of not following your instruction, your word, your judgments, and not following your teachings. God, I pray that as a church, we would take heed of your warning. And in the next few minutes as we study your word, God, that you would impress upon us how we can walk worthy, live lives to honor the gospel, and the salvation we have received in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God had brought Israel out of Egypt. He kept the promise he made to Abraham. He kept the covenant he made with his people. He had brought them into the promised land and gave them victory over their enemies. 
they had settled in the land, they had built their, their houses, and then this, this king, a man after God's own heart named David, said that he would build a temple to God. And God said, no, you will not build me a house, but I will build you a house, the Davidic promise. And that's a, one I stress regularly, but it's one that we need to remember in our mind the whole time through Amos, because it's going to come up gloriously at the end of this book. God says to David, I will build you a house, and from you will come a ruler that will reign forever. And then David died, and his son Solomon became the ruler over Israel. And Solomon built a temple, but Solomon had issues. Deuteronomy 17 states that Israel's king was not to take many wives, yet Solomon took many wives, some of which followed idols and led his heart astray. Deuteronomy 17 says the king should not take many horses, yet Solomon gathered around him 1,400 chariots. Solomon did not follow the Lord's instruction as he should. And we see in the next generation, this caused a rent in Israel. By the time of Amos, God's people were divided into two tribes, north and south, Judah and Israel. After King Solomon's death, one of Solomon's former officers, a man named Jeroboam, returned from exile in Egypt to lead a revolt. And ten of the tribes of Israel followed Jeroboam and formed what is the North Kingdom. It was established. It was called Israel. The capital city of the North Kingdom was Shechem. And the Northern Kingdom was later destroyed by the Assyrians. And they followed idols. And they didn't follow God's word as they should. They forgot God. They were nominal in their faith. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and they remained faithful to the Davidic line of kings. They followed this line of kings coming out of David until the fall of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., but they also had issues. They also often failed to follow God's word. And so we think about a guy named Amos. We talked about with the kids. Amos didn't go to prophet school. Amos was a shepherd and a fig farmer from a town called Tekoa, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He lived about the same time as Jonah, if you're trying to get your biblical timelines right. And his name, Amos, means burden bearer. He was a farmer. He was a simple man. He was a simple man from the southern kingdom that God called to deliver a message to the northern kingdom, to the idolatrous and the unrighteous, northern kingdom. And Amos makes it very clear that nominal faith is not enough. God's people must live lives worthy. Nominal faith is not enough. You must live a life worthy of your calling from God. And as we think about these themes of idolatry and injustice and unrighteousness and, and Amos's ministry there to the northern kingdom, we learn in this long passage we read this morning, two chapters, four characteristics of God. Four characteristics of God that we as New Covenant believers need to understand and understand do not change. The first one is that God speaks. God is a God who speaks. God uses all kinds of people. God will bring justice. He cares about justice. And fourth, God is sovereign over his creation. And the first characteristics we learn about God uh, in the book of Amos is that God speaks. 
Now just let your eyes fall on this passage. We're not going to read it all again. We're not going to break down every section. But as you let your eyes fall on this passage, 13 times we read, the Lord says, the Lord God has spoken. This is the Lord's declaration. And it it might seem elementary and it might seem obvious, but I think it's important to remember that God is not a God who created the world and then walked away and said, I've wound the clock, let's see what happens. We do not believe as the deists that God just started the world in motion, he set certain laws in motion, and then he went off to do other things. But he has spoken to his people. He has given them instruction. He is active. Uh, I I told Sarah this week, and I don't want to offend anybody, so please don't hear me say that I'm saying anything um, bad about you or about people that say it, but I absolutely hate the phrase, God's up to something, you guys. Like, I hear that all the time. I hate that phrase. God's up to something. God is always up to something because God is always active in his world. In good times and bad times, God is actively sustaining and bringing about his plan. He is not silent. He did not create the world and walk away. He is not aloof from his creation, but he has revealed himself to his creation. In the Old Testament, we see it in various ways. A burning bush, an audible voice, through the words of a prophet, by his own finger on the tablets, right? When Moses on Sinai. But now he has revealed himself through his completed written word. And his spirit illuminates that word to us that we might understand it. Friends, a basic claim in Christianity, basic to all of Christianity, it's always been basic, is this phrase right here. Where the Bible speaks, God speaks. Where God's word speaks, God has spoken. In God's word, we learn who he is. We learn how things come to be. We learn why the world is so messed up in Genesis 3. We learn about God's plan to redeem mankind. We see these covenants worked out and then fulfilled in Christ. And then we learn how we are to live as God's people in light of the redemption that we have received. The scriptures are important. They are crucial. They are essential to our life. Just how important are the scriptures? Well, just think about this. The Lord gave Adam and Eve his instruction. And then the ancient serpent led them away by saying, did God really say? In the Psalms, we read that God's instruction is perfect. It is sweeter than honey. It is more valuable than gold. It makes the heart glad. It renews our life. Sometimes people will say to me, or have said in the past, they'll say, you know, pastor, people don't need the Bible. What they need is to know they're loved. Well, the Bible says that his word renews life. It is sweeter than honey. It reframes our thinking in a way that honors the Lord and leads to a life that honors him. It renews life. Yes, you need God's word. God's people need God's word. We read that in the Psalms. In the gospel, we see God the Son refute the ancient serpent with Scripture. Go and read that story. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, each time he quotes the Bible, Christ answers religious leaders with the Bible. God the Son was not above quoting Scripture. The epistles state that all Scripture is God-breathed from the Holy Spirit, and it's how we are made wise. Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word when it is easy and when it is hard. Stick with the Scriptures. Athanasius defended the divinity of Christ from God's Word. The Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. 
in the SBC when our, our convention was going to theological liberalism, the conservative resurgence loudly said, we will follow the Bible. And this week, messengers from our church said loudly, we will follow the Bible with their vote. But friends, the northern kingdom had ceased following God's instruction. We see that. We see that in all of these areas. We see that in Judah when it says they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and not kept his statues, the lies that their ancestors followed and led them astray. We see that Solomon failed to follow what Deuteronomy 17 says. Friends, the Bible is crucial for the life of the church. And God sent Amos to the northern kingdom to remind them of that fact. Second, God uses all kinds of people. As we've said, Amos is a shepherd and a fig farmer. Right? He was a country boy. Some of the prophets went to prophet school. They had formal theological training, but not Amos. The disciples were fishermen, and they had other occupations, yet the Lord used them. Paul trained under one of the premier theologians of his day. And what we see as we read the Bible is that when Christ takes hold of someone, he uses them according to his will. The passage is not an indictment on formal training, but it shows us that God uses all kinds of people. And I want to illustrate that with two Johns. Two Johns. John Bunyan and John Owen. Two guys that lived about the same time in what they call the golden age of Puritanism in, in England. John Bunyan was a simple Englishman. He served for a little while as a soldier. He stood watch like a soldier. He, uh, he did all of the things a soldier did. Then he became a tinker, became a handyman. He fixed stuff. Some of you guys are real handy. He was a guy that fixed things. But then when the Lord saved him, he became a simple Baptist preacher with a simple message of Jesus Christ. While he was in prison for preaching, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, a book that we're still reading today. Our small groups read this year. Then we have this other John. John Owen is well-educated. Owen graduates with a bachelor's and master's degrees from Queens College, Oxford University before he's 20 years old. He served as a chaplain to royalty, and, and he wrote timeless theological books. I have a couple of them. I know that uh, I think Alan McDonald and Keenan have like the whole set, and it's like, I don't know how many volumes they've told me, but it's like that wide, right? He's written all of these things. Which one of them did God use? Both. Both men were used mightily by God, and their works are still read today. Both men wrote of God's grace. Both men preached God's grace. Bunyan preached in the woods and got thrown in jail a lot. And you have John Owen, who preached before Parliament. Owen admired the Baptist preacher. Charles II, King of England, once asked Owen, why do you go to hear that tinker preach? Like, you're an educated man. The finest schools in England. Why do you go hear that simple Baptist preach? And John Owen said this, Your Majesty, if I could but preach Christ the way that simple teacher, tinker preaches Christ, I would willingly relinquish all of my learning. God used both men greatly despite their backgrounds. Now, I will never, you'll never hear me argue for an ignorant ministry. C.H. Spurgeon was never formally ordained or educated, yet he learned deep theology by reading his father and grandfather's Puritan books. He was steeped in deep biblical truth outside the walls of an institution, but he was steeped nonetheless. 
we do want to understand that God uses men and women of all backgrounds, people who are educated, people who are simple. God uses all. He uses people like you. And he uses people like me. All for his honor and his glory. Third, God will bring justice. God loves justice. When you read this first two chapters, we see a lot of cities highlighted. And if you look at a map of this region, you'll see that Amos starts with the cities toward the outside, and he works his way in, and he has Israel right in the middle. And he unpacks all of these types of unrighteousness and injustice that they are doing. And he uses this phrase, which I'm sure you caught and maybe wondered about, where he says, I will punish for three sins, even four. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew world, three equals completeness. Four is overflow. And so what we see in these cities is there's not just only a complete sin or a complete depravity, but an overflow of sin and depravity. God will punish for three sins, even overflow four. We see oppression. We see abortion ripping children from pregnant women to enlarge their territory for, for gain, killing of babies for this gain. We see deception Injustice. Friends, God hates injustice. Now, I really, 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 really hate that I cannot say that in 2023 without certain political things coming up in people's minds. Right? And so I hope most of you have known me long enough to know that I'm not talking about politics right now, but I'm talking about Bible. I hate that the Bible has been used to forward a political platform, and I hate that biblical justice has been ignored to combat a political platform. Can we just clear the table for a second? I am not preaching politics. And I know sometimes people, if they're steeped in that, they hear what they want to hear. I once heard a guy say that I was talking about Black Lives Matter, and I promise you I've never preached about Black Lives Matter a day in my life. I am not choosing or rejecting any political platform or candidate right now. I am not saying that the shenanigans that happened a few years ago was justified, and I'm not saying what was done to faithful law enforcement officers was right. At the same time, I can say that we do not get a pass on caring for the marginalized or ignoring corruption. I'm simply saying what the Bible says, and it's this. God hates injustice. God hates corruption. God hates unrighteousness. And if that, friends, if that statement does not fit your political framework, change your framework. Because God hates injustice. The Bible teaches us that injustice starts with idolatry. Injustice starts with idolatry. The Bible teaches that disloyalty to God is sin, and that's where it starts. But so is the selfish lack of concern for others. If you know, the Ten Commandments can be summarized into two, ten, two groups. Love for God, love for others. Jesus echoes this when he says the greatest command is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your neighbor as yourself. If we are not loving God as we should, there is no way that we will love our neighbor as we should. There is a sense in which our injustice to our neighbor starts with rebellion against God. 
Injustice to our neighbor starts with, did God really say? Israel has become mixed up with pagan religion. They have failed to be faithful to God, and now they're failing to be faithful to their neighbor. Idolatry is at the heart of Israel's unfaithfulness. They have failed to love God as they're supposed to be, which means there's no way that they can love their neighbor their fellow man. And we see this in this oppression and uh, killing of babies and the corruption that we read in these first two chapters. It is impossible to be a faithful Christian and disregard your neighbor. It is impossible to be a faithful Christian and disregard your neighbor. If we truly worship Christ, we will love others. And God will correct that injustice. He promises, I will correct that injustice on the day of the Lord. This day of the Lord is the coming judgment day. It is a day of justice. Justice could be defined as God's actions to correct unrighteousness. So justice, again, not thinking of political frameworks right now, American politics, we're thinking just of the word justice in a biblical sense, is defined as God's actions, His judgment to correct unrighteousness. God will one day bring all of mankind to account for their rebellion against Him and the evil they have done to one another. The day of the Lord is both a warning and a hope. It is a warning to those who are corrupt, who are doing things wrong, who are oppressing the marginalized, who are, 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 are killing and corrupt. It is a warning to them that one day God's going to act. But it's hope for those who love the Lord to say one day God is going to act and this stuff will stop. For the people of God, the day of the Lord is the day in which God will vanquish all injustice, all unrighteousness. But for the rebel, the day of the Lord is a day of dread. The day of the Lord is the day in which all will know that God is the ultimate ruler of the universe and that he will bring his supreme gavel to bear on corruption, unrighteousness, and injustice because finally God is sovereign. I want you to just let your eyes again fall on these two chapters and notice that God never says, I'm going to try. He never says, I'm going to do my best. He never says, you know what? If I have my way, I'm, man, if I can do it, I'm going to punish this. He says, I will. I am God. I spoke everything around you into existence. And I will bring my justice. I count 21 times in this passage that God states, He will do something. He will send fire. He will not relent from punishing. He will break down gates. Furthermore, he recounts the things he's already done. He says, I destroyed the Amorites as you advanced into the land. He says, I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I raised up your sons as prophets. God says, I did that. Think Ephesians 1. Not long ago, the men's group, we read Ephesians 1, and I said, I'm just going to emphasize the things that God does. And I was just... I will do this. I have brought this. God says, me, I am the driving force. I did it all. And I said, where in that do you see that we are responsible? Well, we like that passage, right? How about the ones where God says, I will bring judgment? 
Not a very seeker-sensitive message, right? That's what progressive Christianity will tell us. But we have to know the God that we serve. We have to know the true God of the Bible. And he says 21 times that he will do something and tells us all the things he's done. Job 12.23 says that God makes nations great and then destroys them. He enlarges nations and then he leads them away. God does it. If you're in the men's Friday lunch, you're probably sick of hearing this passage. I hope not. But we talk a lot in the last few weeks with what we are talking about, our, our themes that we're talking about, God's sovereignty, providence, predestination, all those things we've been talking about, about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4. If you remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar's walking along the, the, the top of his, his castle, and he's looking out of the city, and he gets prideful, and he says, look what I did. I did all this. I built this city. Look at how great I am. And what does God do to him? Turns him into this crazy guy, right? And for a period of time, he's like out eating grass. His hair gets all long. He's, he's doing all this crazy knucklehead stuff. And the advisors are probably like, man, this is our king, this, this guy out here. Then his sanity returns to him. And what does he say about God? He says, God, your dominion is an everlasting dominion. You will do what you please with the inhabitants of the earth because they're all like grasshoppers. No one will hold back your hand. No one will question you and say, what have you done, God? Why did you do this? Nations will crumble. Nations will rise all according to the sovereign will of God because, as this passage says, He will. According to His will. Each one of us has a birth date and a death date according to God's will. When we come to faith, when we marry a spouse, where we pitch our tent, where we buy a house, it's all according to God's will. He directs the feet of men. You may plan your way, but God directs your feet. He directs my feet. God's sovereignty, His holiness, His perfect instruction, His desire from justice, all of these things God's people had forgotten. What about you? What about you? Friends, this passage should be a cold shower for us as a church. A reminder that we serve a God who is sovereign and holy and cares about justice and has given us His Word. He has spoke. So I want to give us three things. You could talk about a lot of things, but I want to give us three things that God's people should take away from this passage. Three things that we should do in light of these verses. First, as God's people, we must take serious the things God has said in His Word. The things God has said in His Word. The issues we are dealing with in our state convention is because this hasn't happened. Many of the issues that happen in churches all over the world is because this hasn't happened. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. It is theopneustos, God-spirated. It is from God. And we must let Scripture inform our understanding of God. It, it must inform our theology. As one of my teachers, Owen Strand, used to say, we don't do theology according to what we like. We don't do it according to what we've always done, but we do it according to what God's Word has said. Is God all-knowing? Is God sovereign? Is God unchanging? Is God just? 
the Bible tells us. And we must let Scripture inform our understanding of salvation, the gospel. Has God become man? Were our sins nailed to the cross with Christ? Did man choose God or does God chose man? The Bible tells us. We must let Scripture inform our understanding of how to live, ethics. Are we called to live in a worthy manner as God's people? Or are we called to pray a prayer one time and just do whatever we want? Are we called to reject sin? Or are we called to excuse our sin? Do we need to love other people? Is that really essential? Like, I don't like people. I don't really want to be around people. Do I really have to love people? Can I spend my days accumulating more stuff and living my best life? Well, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us where our priorities should be. Israel was the Old Testament people of God, yet they ignored God's instruction. They went to the temple. They still brought sacrifices. Sure, they followed some cultural idols, but they still remained faithful to some aspects of the old religion. In our day, we attend church. We put offerings in the little box in the back. Sure, we let culture define some aspects of our worldview, but you know what we do more than most people for Jesus? We at least flip our nickel into Christ's tin cup on our way to do what we want to do. Friends, don't be like Israel. Don't ever think because you prayed a prayer, been dunked in a baptistry, and do some Christian things that you're safe. The Bible says that we're to evaluate ourselves. And the Bible says God's people, well, they follow his instruction. Second, as God's people, we need to seek to kill sin in our lives. I mentioned two Johns earlier. One of the Johns said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In this passage, we see the danger of oppressing communities, harboring rage against other people, killing the unborn, ripping babies from a mother's womb. Let me stop right there. Again, we talk about politics. But if you're okay ripping babies from a mother's womb, and you can justify that economically or otherwise, repent. Because that is a life. That is an image bearer of God. And is one of the biggest sins of our corporate nation right now. I believe that it is the killing of the unborn and that pastors don't call it murder. So if you're okay with that according to your political framework, repent unashamedly. Repent. That's what was going on there. And the killing of babies, rejecting of God's command, sexual depravity, subjugating and exploiting the poor, insincerely serving the Lord with a weak and nominal religion. Friends, sin is not merely something icky that we just want to kind of stay away from, you know, so we can have like an empowered life or something like that. It's not just something kind of gross that we want to stay away from. It's not something holding us back from living our best life now. It is rebellion against God, and we must deal with it, or He will deal with us. The Bible tells us that He will deal with you. 
and he will deal with me. In The Great Divorce, Lewis talks about a man with a lizard on his shoulder. And this lizard is whispering evil, vile, sinful things into the man's ear. And in the the narrative here, which is just an allegory, we see that a flaming spirit angel comes up to the man and says, would you like for me to make him quiet? And the man says, oh, of course, I, I would. Well, the angel says, then I will kill him. And the man says, well, uh, mm, uh, hey, look out. Hey, hey, you're, you're kind of burning me being so close to me. Just maybe keep away as he stepped back. The angel says, didn't you want him killed? The man says, well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I mean, I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. The angel says, it is the only way. And his burning hands were very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, well, that's a farther question. You see, I, I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, uh, for a moment I thought you were just talking about silencing him, and, and, and it's because, well, it, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please really don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep now. It's gone to sleep on its own accord, and I'm sure all will be right now. Thank you ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it under control now. I'll be able to keep it in order now, and I think a gradual process might be far better than killing it. A gradual process is of no use at all. May I kill it? Don't you think so? I'm... I think over what you said, I'll think over what you said very carefully, and honestly, I will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I need good health for this operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. May I kill it? Friends, what sin are you harboring that must be killed? Lying, gossip, anger, lust, lovelessness towards others. What are you putting off? What do you think you have under control? What do you think no one knows about that must be killed? Yeah, you can leave here. And you can put on your favorite song. I was... I was unregenerate once, too. I once struggled with sin. You can put on your favorite song on the radio. You can talk it over with your spouse and have them tell you how wonderful you are. You can go home and watch your favorite show and, and, and the words from that crazy preacher and the words from that, that old crazy preacher, Amos, they can fade from your mind and you can soothe your conscience. But Amos tells us the day of the Lord will come. And repentance is essential today. Third, as God's people, we must find comfort in the fact that God is sovereign and will bring justice. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas that are all that is in them. You give life to them, and the stars of heaven worship you. As we were driving 
in Wasilla this week, and the, and the fall colors were just so beautiful, and the mountains were high, and the termination dust. I'd ask the kids all the time, I'd say, from our catechism questions, kids, who created all this? And they'd say, God. What else did God create? He created us. Why did, create, why did God create you in all things? And they'd say, for his own glory. And I'd say, man, doesn't this give glory to God, these high mountains? And we hear Nehemiah saying that with the stars, they worship him. God's rule is found throughout all of creation. It is found throughout all of Scripture. He has absolute authority over heavens and earth. He upholds them by his power. He created them by his power. He determines the course of history, and he directs the feet of men. And he's also a sovereign judge, the sovereign judge. Paul told the Athenians that God commands all people everywhere to repent because God has set a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. One day the dead will rise and all humanity will receive a verdict that their life reveals from a sovereign God, the sovereign judge. Those in Christ will be acknowledged on the basis of Christ's atoning work and merit in their life on their behalf and they will enter their eternal reward. And the rest will receive a destiny commiserate with the godless way of life they have chosen. But all hearts, all of our hearts will be exposed on that day, on the day of the Lord. J.I. Packer says this, In the case of those who profess to be Christians, review of their actual words and works will have a special point of uncovering the evidence that shows whether their profession is the fruit of an honest, regenerate heart, or merely the parrot cry of hypocritical religiosity. Those who profess faith and did not express itself in a new lifestyle, marked by hatred of sin and works of loving service to God, and the others will be lost. And others will be lost. Friends, there is no more paramount thing for you to do right now than to examine your life. Because all of us one day will be judged and our works will show whether we have truly trusted Christ or whether we are just here for the good feels or whatever. Tradition. Because God sent forth his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who is eternally God, to this earth to take our sins on himself, to die, to raise from the grave. There's an empty tomb because he has risen and he ascended to the Father's right hand. Still truly God and truly man. And he calls all people everywhere to repent, to believe the gospel, and to turn to Christ. Have you done that? Have you truly repented and turned to Christ? Do the works of your life show that? Growing in godliness, not perfect, but growing in godliness? Or when you put your head on your pillow at night, do you really know you just live the day for yourself? You fought with people to advance your cause. You made financial decisions to advance yourself. You made free time decisions to advance your pleasure. If that's you, friend, I pray you repent and believe the gospel now, today. It is essential. It is the only way. God is sovereign. He is holy. 
He cares about justice, and he has given us instruction. And Amos makes clear that mere nominal faith is not enough. Nominal faith is not enough. As we begin our time in Amos, we are going to be confronted with a call to examine our lives to see if they are consistent with the faith we profess, which is a theme throughout Scripture. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. The church, while you're turning there, the church in Corinth had issues of, maybe go as far as oppression, but certainly factions within the church. The rich having a nicer Lord's Supper than the poor with their cold French fries. We see this division within the, the body of Christ, and Paul writes to them to examine and to think about who they are in Christ. And starting at verse 17, we see this. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one sits down to his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which you can eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep, meaning died. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together, eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will come not under judgment. I will give instructions about other matters whenever I come. Friends, this passage is a clarion call to examine yourself before we come to the Lord's table. When you partake in the Lord's Supper, you are visibly professing Christ 
that you are unified in, in unity with him. Do you love your fellow Christians as you should? If not, turn from it and start. Are you unjust in your dealing with others? Have you sowed division among God's people? Is there a sin in which you have not repented of? If so, repent. Do not ignore this call of self-examination. Do not eat or drink judgment on yourself. If the men who have been asked to serve the Lord's Supper would come forward at this time. As they are coming forward, we are going to observe the Lord's Supper today, and as we talk about downstairs, the gospel preached verbally. In the Lord's Supper, the gospel is preached visibly. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, if you have trusted Christ and have been baptized, we invite you to join in partaking in the Lord's Supper with us this morning, to, to celebrate visibly who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. If you're not, we just ask that you allow the elements to pass. But I, I encourage you to observe those who partake, because by doing so, they are confessing that they are trusting in the Lord Jesus alone in all their hope in life and in death. Eternal God, God, we praise your holy name and we somberly and soberly partake in this Lord's Supper uh, with thanksgiving and knowing that uh, you are gracious and merciful to send your only son to this earth to live the life that we could not live and to die in our stead. And God, we thank you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us eat in remembrance of Jesus Christ.
Father God, as we partake in this Lord's Supper and thinking about the themes of walking worthy and living lives worthy and uh, living lives that care about righteousness and justice, uh, I pray that we as a body would um, pursue those things and that we would partake in this supper in a worthy manner and that we would live our lives uh, likewise in a way that honors you. God, give us the strength, give us wisdom, work in us in such a way. We pray this in the one who died for us, name, amen. Let's drink in remembrance of Jesus Christ.